Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Diffusion Science Radio, where we will be discovering how the Velociraptor possibly had feathers, but not for flying, how noisy classrooms affect learning, but it's not the students being noisy, and how scientists have been cast in a documentary, but not the one they thought they were being cast in. And the maverick Lachlan Watmore takes us through the first tiny steps into space with Sputnik. But before we launch into that... Here's Emily Fern and Joe Desmond with the latest Diffusion News. As dinosaurs go, Velociraptor mongoliensis is fairly famous. Three starred in the 1993 film Jurassic Park. Despite the creature's fame, scientists have found remains from only about 20 Velociraptors. Most of these discoveries turned up in the last 15 years or so, says Alan H. Turner, a paleontologist at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. After a close look at some ancient bones, Turner and colleagues recently made a surprising discovery about velociraptors. They found the first direct evidence of big feathers on the relatively large dinosaur. The researchers looked at velociraptor fossils found in Asia's Gobi Desert in 1998. The bones belonged to a dinosaur that was 1.5 metres long. The creature lived 80 million years ago and scientists have found 60% of its bones. During their analysis, the researchers were surprised to discover six bumps on one of the animal's forearms. The bumps were spaced regularly about 4 millimetres apart. Each bump also measured about 0.8 millimetres across. These features have never before been observed on a velociraptor but they are common on the arm bones of some modern birds. Called quill knobs, the bumps reveal where ligaments attach major flight feathers to the bone. Not all birds have these, and members of the same bird species often have varying numbers. Still, the presence of quill knobs means that feathers were definitely once connected there. In further support of the feathered conclusion, the bumps on the Velociraptor fossil were rough in texture. The quill knobs of modern birds are similarly rough where ligaments attach. Turner's team found six such ligament attachments on the Velociraptor's arm. Based on the spacing, scientists believe that the animal could have had as many as 14 large feathers on each forelimb. Researchers had previously found feathers on several small dinosaurs that are closely related to Velociraptors. Members of those species, which belong to the genus Microraptor, were usually less than one metre long. These creatures were most likely to use their feathers to glide from tree to tree. Velociraptors, however, could not have used their feathers to fly or glide through the air because the animals were too big. The creature that Turner's team studied, for example, probably weighed about 15 kilograms and would have measured one metre from its hip to its toes. Nor would the feathers have helped the dinosaurs stay warm. That's because there were too few of the feathers to significantly influence body temperature. Instead, velociraptors may have used their feathers to shield their nests from sunlight or from the eyes of hungry predators. It is also possible that the feathers help the dinos change direction more quickly or leap higher. If you want to learn anything at school, you need to listen to your teachers. 
Unfortunately, millions of children can't hear what their teachers are saying. Often this is due to faulty architecture and building design, which can create echo-filled classrooms that make hearing difficult. In recent years, scientists who study sound have been urging schools to reduce background noise, which may include loud air conditioning units and clanging pipes. They are also targeting outdoor noises such as highway traffic. Experts at the American Speech-Language Hearing Association have created guidelines that describe how much noise is too much noise, although there are no laws to enforce these recommendations yet. Some schools are already changing existing classrooms to make them quieter, and new schools are being built with the most advanced noise-eliminating technology available. Noise reduction is an important issue. Why? Because quieter classrooms enable students to concentrate during lessons. Studies have shown that children with hearing impairments suffer most from noisy classrooms. They sometimes can't hear questions that other students are asking, and compared with children with healthy hearing, they have a harder time picking up new vocabulary words by overhearing them in conversation. Tests have shown that children with hearing loss have much more trouble learning to read than children who can hear well. They also have a harder time behaving correctly in social situations because they don't always hear how people normally tell stories or respond to questions. And background noise makes this even harder for them to comprehend social situations. As many as 15% of school-aged children in the United States have ear problems that affect their hearing on any given day. Tests show that even children with normal hearing have a harder time in the classroom when there's too much noise. Younger children in particular have trouble separating important sounds, like a teacher's voice, from background noise, such as the hum of traffic on a nearby highway. That's because their brains haven't developed the ability to differentiate sounds as well as teenage and adult brains do. Children with learning disabilities and speech impediments, and those for whom English is a second language, also have a harder time learning in noisy situations. Recommended guidelines advise that the background noise in many classrooms be no higher than 35 decibels, and that's about as loud as a whispering voice 15 feet away. Many classrooms are much louder than this, and unfortunately, many schools don't have the resources to correct this problem. The noisier a room is to begin with, the louder children and teachers have to talk to hear one another, so sound levels just keep going up and up and up in a kind of snowball effect. The loud hum of heating and air conditioning units is the biggest sound problem in many schools, while the scraping of chairs on the floor adds to noise. So does the background whir of classroom computers and the hum of traffic. The costs of converting a loud building into a quiet one are exorbitant, and increasing numbers of schools are making this sound a priority. And people who are planning new schools are also paying attention to these acoustics. Here are some more economical suggestions to helping make a quieter classroom and therefore a better learning environment. Put soft pads on the bottoms of chairs and desks. Put ventilation systems on a timer so that it doesn't make a lot of noise during class time. Ask schools to fix drafty windows. Where outside air slips through, sound slips through too. Place soundproofing panels on the walls or use a combination of soft carpets, thick curtains and cloth wall hangings to absorb sound. Also in the news this week, scientists feel miscast in film on life's origins. The evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins was contacted by a producer at Rampant Films inviting him to contribute to a documentary called Crossroads. 
The film is described as an examination of the intersection of science and religion. Dr Dawkins, an eminent scientist who teaches at Oxford University in England, is also an outspoken atheist. But now, Dr Dawkins and other scientists who agreed to be interviewed say they are surprised, and in some cases angered, to find themselves not in Crossroads at all, but in a film with a new name that makes the case for intelligent design, an ideological cousin of creationism. The film is called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. The film is described in its online trailer as a startling revelation that freedom of thought and freedom of inquiry have been expelled from publicly funded high schools, universities and research institutions. The film asserts that people in academia who see evidence of a supernatural intelligence have unfairly lost their jobs, been denied tenure or suffered other penalties. Mr Stein appears in the film's trailer, backed by the rock anthem Bad to the Bone, declaring that he wants to unmask people out there who want to keep science in a little box where it can't possibly touch God. If he had known the film's premise, Dr Dawkins said he would never have appeared in it. At no time was I given the slightest clue that these people were a creationist front, he said. Eugenie C. Scott, a physical anthropologist who leads the National Centre for Science Education, said she agreed to be filmed after receiving what she described as a deceptive invitation. I have certainly been taped by people and appeared in productions where people's views were different to mine, and that's fine, Dr. Scott said, adding that she would have appeared in the film anyway. I just expect people to be honest with me, and they weren't, she said. The growing furor over the movie is the latest episode in the long-running conflict between science and advocates of intelligent design. There is no credible scientific challenge to the theory of evolution as an explanation for the complexity and diversity of life on Earth. And while individual scientists may embrace religious faith, the scientific enterprise looks to nature to answer questions about nature. Thanks, Emily, and thank you also to Joe for her first news reading.
50 years ago, a shiny metal ball with steel whiskers started a new age. Lachlan Watmore will now tell you why. And it wasn't very big, it wasn't very complicated, it had only stayed in orbit for three months before burning up as it fell back to Earth. But Sputnik was the first human-made object to be deliberately launched into space as an orbiting satellite. In doing so, it began the most frenzied, expensive, technical and at times magnificent phase of the Cold War, the space race. Once upon a time, there was a man named Werner von Braun, who used to make terror weapons for Adolf Hitler. Perhaps his most revolting gadget was the V-2 rocket, a supersonic cigar-shaped medium-range ballistic missile that was used against English cities. It was so fast it could not be shot down, and as the Second World War ended, von Braun and a large group of his German co-workers found themselves in Huntsville, Alabama, making rockets for the Americans. Meanwhile, a fair chunk of V-2 technology and another large group of German scientists had been spirited away to the Soviet Union. Both America and Russia knew that a period of confrontation, perhaps even war between them, was about to start. And that war could well turn nuclear, so the two powers began to develop ways of delivering thermonuclear death to each other. The United States had a powerful air force with a bomber fleet that had been fine-tuned during the war. They also had a ring of air bases around the USSR from which they could launch their bomber squadrons. By contrast, the Soviets didn't have a collection of allied countries surrounding the USA, so their bombers would have to fly further and negotiate many air defence obstacles such as fighters and surface-to-air missiles along the way. So they decided to put more emphasis on the development of missiles, which, if they worked as well, if not better than the V-2, would be impossible to shoot down. A missile travels much faster than a bomber. So in 1945, an engineer called Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov, who had recently been released from the Gulag after being sent there during Stalin's great purges in the 30s, was dispatched to Germany to gather information on the V-2. Soon he was made chief designer of long-range missiles in the NII-88 Institute, a military department created specifically to develop missiles. It wasn't long before he and his team had developed the R-1, which was a replica of the V-2, and like the V-2, not very reliable. This was superseded by the R-2, which had double the range and could separate its warhead before impact. Then came the R-3 with its 3,000 kilometre range, and after a series of subsequent designs of variable success, the first true intercontinental ballistic missile, the R-7. This was a beast of a machine. 34 metres long, 3 metres in diameter, weighing 280 metric tonnes and capable of delivering a 3 megaton thermonuclear warhead. It looked as though it was wearing flared jeans thanks to four massive liquid fuel booster rockets that comprised its first stage. And it got Korolev thinking. Being no longer considered suspect by the state and in a position of considerable authority by this stage, Korolev was allowed to read Western newspapers. 1957 was called the International Geophysical Year and articles began appearing in the Western press about launching a satellite. The funding would obviously have to be huge and the United States government was not at first inclined to cough up the bread. 
So Korolyov convinced the Soviet bureaucracy to give him the funding in a spirit of Cold War one-upmanship. If the glorious Soviet Union could outshine the West technologically, it would show the superiority of communism and the decadence of the soft-living capitalists in their smug complacency. The first design for the satellite, codenamed Object D, turned out to be too ambitious. It was a large, conical vehicle packed with scientific instruments weighing nearly one and a half metric tonnes. As with so many projects undertaken by separate government departments, many of its parts just didn't fit other parts and the design was shelved to make way for something more simple. By this stage, the heat was on because the US President, Dwight Eisenhower, had announced the development of the first American satellite. With the R-7 modified to act as a launch vehicle, the new satellite came off the drawing board quite quickly. It was spherical, with four long antennae attached to one side and swept back to jut out the other side like four whiskers. The antennae were between 2.4 and 2.9 metres long. The sphere was 58.5 centimetres in diameter, weighing 83.6 kilograms, and made of highly polished aluminium alloy in the hope that its reflective surface would make it visible from Earth. Inside the sphere was a sealed capsule containing some simple instruments and two radio transmitters, one transmitting at a frequency of 20.005 MHz and the other at 40.002 MHz. This made Sputnik easily heard by amateur ham radio operators, perhaps sitting in their smug complacency in America? Nikita Khrushchev certainly hopes so. Ironically, the new gadget was named Sputnik, which means companion. So 50 years ago, at 19.28 hours Greenwich Mean Time, or if you prefer, 22.28 hours Central Moscow Time, on the 4th of October 1957, Sputnik 1 was launched. Not only it, but also the last stage of its R7 booster achieved geosynchronous orbit. As Sputnik separated from the booster, its antennae unfurled and the transmitters began sending signals. Ladies and gentlemen, Diffusion is proud to present Sputnik 1. Pretty high tech, huh? The beeps were gone in three weeks as Sputnik's batteries died and it fell to Earth three months later having completed 1,400 elliptical orbits. Check out the internet for some interesting information on Sputnik's apogee and perigee or how far and how close to Earth it came as it orbited. Sputnik, as you probably know, was a major slap in the face for American prestige and salt was rubbed into the wound when the Soviets subsequently sent the first dog, the first mouse, the first rat... And finally, the first man into space. Yuri Gagarin was soon followed by Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. The newly formed government department of NASA had some catching up to do and wouldn't feel completely vindicated until 12 years later when Neil Armstrong made his one small step. Apollo 11 basically signalled the end of the space race because pretty much all the milestones of space exploration had been reached. Humans had flown in space, walked in space, sent probes off to far planets and even walked on the moon. The golden age was over, and it all started when a shiny, whiskered silver ball sang this song. This feature is dedicated to all pilots, astronauts and cosmonauts of all nations. Per Ardua, Ad Astra. That was flyboy Lachlan Watmore and the 50th anniversary of the launching of Sputnik and the beginning of the space race. And it's also the end of our ride for this week. Thanks for being with us. If you'd like to contact any of our writers or presenters, 
shoot off an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or drop into our website, www.diffusionradio.com, where you can also find all of our past episodes. Contributing to this week's show were Emily Fern, Joe Desmond, and Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion is produced at 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast across Australia and the world by the Community Radio Network. I'm Ed Pollitt. Keep your chin up. It's the only way you'll see the stars.